Um, lots of people, Sue and Bev, are recovering, I think you all know, and doing well. Does he have supernatural? Most of them have open heart surgery, uh, stent, or whatever. Yeah. Bev. I got it, thanks. Okay. Thanks. Um, both of them are doing well. Any any prayer requests this morning? First for Susanna. I've got her on my mind. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Courtney and Baby Wyatt. Baby Wyatt? Sounds like he's doing well. Yeah, Baby Wyatt's doing well. How's Grandma? Grandma's tired. But you they, look tired. Your eyes Mom are... needs some, some help, so let's pray for her. So. What's your name? Jess Courtney. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Oh, boy, a lot going on. Lots of us older, leaving this world, new life coming into it all the time. Great paradox of our life. Thank you for the gift of our lives, um, Lord, um, for your presence this morning, um, your life itself in the Mass that we carry within us. Help us to take care of that life. Um, our sins threaten it. How good you are. Um, what a great purity um, that those sins will never overcome you. No matter what happens with us, whatever our sins, help us always um, to put our trust in you, um, to continue to struggle to do what you ask, um, to make it living, to make you living in our lives. Um, ask a special blessing on the work that we're doing with Dante. Um, he really is a prophet. He's helping us to see so much about ourselves and our world. Help us to be strengthened in our efforts from what he offers. Make it living in our own lives. Um, um, come on. Um, help us to take strength in our minds in um, understanding our faith and bringing it to the world and help all that we're learning through our powers of reason to strengthen our faith so that the two grow closer together. They strengthen each other. Ask a um, special blessing on Suzanne. Thank you for um, the successful surgery. Be with her in her recovery. Surround her with your protection. Let no harm come to her. Um, help her heart be quiet. Um, be with baby Wyatt. Sounds like he's okay. Watch over him. More especially, watch over her mom. Say, say. Courtney. Courtney. And even more especially, watch over Courtney's mother. Oh. Help her to get some rest. Um, the baby's younger. Doesn't know. Doesn't have a clue. Mother's younger. Mom is, or grandma isn't. So be with her. Um, I and, your husband. He's and what's, sorry, your husband's name? Jerry. Jerry. Jared? Jerry. Jerry. And with Jerry. Um, a wonderful time for both of them. Let their joys increase, all of them, as Wyatt grows. Um, we offer all of these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Uh, okay. Um, an amazing thing is going on in the top of Paradiso. So, um, I, th I think something, you're going to see something extraordinary this morning. 
the two of you behave. Whoever did my tea, sit. Whoever did it, mm -hmm. th was that? Thank you. Thanks, David. Um, <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago, we were going to go through Dunn, some of his poems, and some of the people in the evening class had some negative things to say about dying. I think I probably made some comment about the fact that we're all aging and it's getting closer for all of us, and a couple of people got really negative. So instead of reading Dunn, I read those two poems by Herbert, Death and Love. You remember the one in which Herbert describes death as gloomy until Christ comes, and then he's full of blood, and, you know. We're supposed to look forward to death. Um, that's our faith. We're supposed to. Whatever dread we feel about our sins, our faith is still in Christ. Um, we're supposed to look forward with gladness, to not be afraid. Pope John used to say that all the time, be not afraid. He's echoing Christ. Um, anyway, we, I, I took a break from Dunn, but I want to come back to it. There's two poems I want to read this morning. <coughs> we read um, Sonnet 14, I think, Out of My Heart. Didn't we read that last week? I think so. And I wanted to read 10 to this, this week and Supernatural Love, and I'll get to Supernatural Love in a second. On, on the section, the first page, page of the selection of, of Dunn's poem, the middle one is Death Be Not Proud. <coughs> I get the two classes mixed up. I don't think I did, I hope I didn't, because then I'm repeating myself. Most of you know from work we did earlier that the traditional meter in English poet is what's called iambic pentameter. And iamb is a raising, is a, um, it's, a it's a raising foot. The, the emphasis goes up, so it goes da-da. Um, what's going on in a line of poetry is exactly what goes on in a musical composition. You know, for any of you who've studied when you were kids, that Musics have a beat. It can be 6 8, 4 4, 2 4, whatever the beat is. That beat remains regular. It's important because it not only establishes a rhythm, but it helps make possible a greater emphasis when the, po when the musical composer will invert those or add several quick feet or whatever the, you know, the musician is going to do. So holding to that rhythm is absolutely crucial because it gives power to whatever variations he plays on it. You, I think we all know that, yeah? Same thing goes on in poetry, because their poetry is governed by a musical order, by a measure. The old Greek and Roman epics were in hexameter lines, six-foot lines. Um, and they're different. They're, they're, um, it, it's, um, the, the feet are established by the weight of a sound, um, more than by a strict meter, in a sense. In English, that's not so. We have a strict meter, and the traditional meter is iambic. Lots of poems will write in a, poets will write in a tetrameter line or a hexameter line. They can, but the, the traditional established line is pentameter, five feet, because it avoids the quickness and the, the gravity of the other two extremes. It's the most measured, so it accommodates the most kinds of experiences. Is that clear? Um, and a, a poet does the same thing that a musician does. 
very often he can invert a foot, like in, in the first foot if he does this. Any good poet who, in reading poetry will recognize that immediately because he knows in his head, I am big pentameters, da 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 da. Uh, um, if we went to a Robert Frost poem, just for example, in Stopping by Woods, if I remember, it's tetrameters, four lines. He goes, Whose woods these are, I think I know. I, I'm, read, I'm speaking that so you can hear the rhythm. Mm -hmm. You never read it that way. Mm -hmm. Whose woods these are, you can see how it destroy the poem. Mm -hmm. But the meter's there. Good poets hear it against the rhetorical speaking of the poem. We're always meant to read a poem rhetorically for meaning. So we don't go, whose woods these are, I think I know. You can see how it destroyed the poem. You go, whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though, you know, he'll go on. Very often lines will run over. Lines will pause at the end. I mean, a poet has an ear. He hears all of that because that's part of the meaning and part of the feeling. Okay? You all with me? Mm -hmm. This is, a, I feel like I'm back in an English classroom, but, okay? Now, my reason for <laughs> just stopping for a moment, because ordinarily I don't want to do that. This isn't, you know, we're reading for the meaning of it, not for you guys to learn poetry, but it's a good thing to know, okay? Sonnet, Dunn Sonnet 10 does an interesting thing in the opening four lines. Um, God, I just, I have so forgotten my feet. Um, but anyway, he, what, he, what he does in the first four lines is give four consecutive stresses. That's rare. And I think, I think a couple of the Shakespeare poems we read, there were variations running through. I didn't stop to point them out because it wasn't the time, but... Um, <clears throat> this is a meditation on death. And if you look at the opening lines, it's strange because the opening, the opening syllable is stopped with a comma. And it's followed by four strong, or three strong syllables. Do you all have the page in front of you? Do you see it? Do you see do you see the come after death? Is everybody following? Even, even that is unusual, right? Because, because as soon, you're, no longer, you're no sooner in the poem than suddenly you stop. Are you all following? Dunn is really conscious of that. It's a way of, it's like holding that first syllable, death. And then it's followed by three strong syllables. So when you hear the beat of that bump, 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 that's not, I mean, but that's, Bum, 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 bum. You all hear that. You all recognize it. What is it? Beethoven's which? Fifth, right? Okay, so what's Beethoven's symphony about? It's a meditation on death. Those opening lines are death knocking on a door. If you ever heard the symphony, da 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 da, you can hear the doom, the the heaviness of it. It's a meditation on death. That's death knocking, okay? Um, death be not proud. I've said this in the Monday evening class, I, he I hear those lines. I, it, it, it's so hard for me to believe that Beethoven didn't have Dunn's meditation somewhere deep within him when he composed that symphony. I may be wrong, but this opening is so strange. Death be not proud. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> God, I should have played 
fifth behind me as I was reading this. This is like Herbert's poem on death. Uh, remember, Herbert's poem was an affirmation of death once Christ came, because it, it gave us a reason for being happy to go through the death wailing. Okay. Dunn's doing the same thing, but it's a much heavier poem. It's a much heavier poem. Okay, so let me read Dunn's "Death Be Not Proud." <clears throat> Remember, the reason for this is for us to remember our faith that it affirms death, that it shouldn't be something we should be so afraid of because Christ died for us and our hope is in him. Whatever our sins are, we, we want to get better. We're asked to get better. Lent is a time of repentance. We're asked to take penance really seriously. We just left purgatory, Dante's purgatory, and spent, what, four or five weeks looking at purgatory is an image of the church on earth. It's what we should be doing, practicing penance. Um, so right at the heart of the whole uh, effort of purgatory is dying to ourselves gladly. Learning to be glad, to take on a discipline, knowing that we a new life will come from it. Right? That's what purgatory is. Learning to die to ourselves, stop making ourselves so important, um, put ourselves away and become good. Holy Sonnet 10. <clears throat> Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be, much pleasure, then from thee much more must flow, and soonest our best men with thee do go. Much more is going to come out of it. It's just not a negative thing. And notice the inversion of the last foot, the fifth foot in the fourth line. Thy not poor death, yet thou canst, uh, nor yet canst thou kill me. I mean, you could, there's an inversion of different stress pattern there. And soonest our best men with thee do go, rest of their bones and souls' delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men, and dost with poison, war, and sickness dwell, and poppy or charms can make us sleep as well, and better than thy stroke. Why swellest thou then? One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Lovely poem. Okay, can you find supernatural love? If you don't have it, just listen. You don't need to look at it. Um, my reason for wanting to read this this morning, I think it'll become a little bit clearer when we start the Paradiso because some, something so amazing is going on there. Just amazing. You, you, all of you who've been here for a while have seen me, have heard me read this poem probably half a dozen times now. I love it mm -hmm. so much. And you've seen me break up almost every time. I read it Monday night and I didn't break up. Mm. First time. Um, I must be getting calloused or something. <laughs> hard heart. Um, my reason for wanting to read it this morning is this. Those of you who've heard the poem before, you know that everything in the poem speaks. Absolutely everything. 
Um, it's, remember, it's about this, it's, it's told from the point of a, of a woman who's grown up looking back on an experience when she was four. She was sewing the sampler, the word of the sampler was beloved. It's from Paul, beloved. Remember, it's not so many of his letters open, beloved. She loves carnations, and the father can't figure out why she's so fast. This is extraordinary to me, really extraordinary. Father can't figure it out. Who's older and should be wiser? She's four. He cannot figure it out. He's so in his head. He's like a modern intellectual. This poem is amazing. Already at four, she has some intuitive connection with carnations. He can't figure it out. He goes to the dictionary to, <laughs> to, God, to look up the word as if a dictionary would give it its meaning. I mean, for an intellectual, yeah. But obviously, she already understands more about that as a four-year-old than he will ever understand in his mind. I mean, it's just, that's how, that's how much we live in our heads today. When he does that, it, the, um, the, the poem describes that moment as if a, a, the word that he's looking at sounded off the page. It spoke. So the words of the dictionary speak. You know that, I mean, we look up words on a dictionary. It's almost as if the dictionary speaks to us. You know that, it's speaking. Except in the poem, it's literal, it's speaking. We hear a voice. She's sewing the sampler. There are descriptions of a tomb, which is ironic because it's where the father is, as if his home is tomb-like. Everything that's said takes us back to um, the New Testament, and Christ's crucifixion. <clears throat> While she's sewing, she pricks herself, the needle, and um, is wounded. And, and the, the words that come into play then call to mind the nails on the cross, the wounds of Christ. Um, she calls out to her father, Daddy, Daddy. It echoes Christ calling to the Father. Father, why you, you know. Um, and every one of the activities speaks. The thread speaks, the blood speaks, carnations speak, they bloom, they blossom into words. So there's nothing in the poem that does not speak. Now, and I, this is all ironic to me because you know Christ is often healing the deaf and blind. And I think when we hear those episodes, we always think, I'm safe, I can see, I can hear. I think if we hear those that way, we're not hearing what's going on. I, I don't believe for a moment they're not really literally deaf and blinded. I do believe they are. But I also believe there's another thing going on because their faith heals them and he usually sends them off. Um, that we're deaf and blind even if we can hear, if you have good hearing and we have good sight. There's just lots we don't see. I've been pressing that for three years now. We think we're all such good readers and Poets show us we don't read very well at all, and we don't hear very well. We don't hear. So if we were in a scene like that, how many of us would hear the words? How many of us would see the meaning? Because I'm sure all of us had, have had experiences where a four-year-old pricks herself. We go get a Band-Aid, then that's it. The beauty of this poem is she's showing there's not an episode that takes place in our lives that doesn't have meaning. Not a one. How could it if Christ made the world? Not an episode goes by. How well do we see the meanings of it? How, 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 how blind are we? How deaf are we to what's going on? How open are our eyes to see the meaning of something? Because it's so ordinary, we take it for granted. The beauty of this poem is it's describing a scene that's 
Couldn't be more ordinary. She loves carnations, the father can't figure out, he goes to the dictionary, she pricks himself, that's it. Nothing happens. The poet shows us everything that happens has meaning. Okay? So the poem in one sense is an illustration of the presence of the logos in our lives. But the logos, there is nothing in creation that doesn't have Christ's stamp of the word. He made everything. If he's the creator, how not? And when we get to the Paradiso in a second, I, I think it's going to certainly blows my mind what's going on there, and we'll see something extraordinary. But that's the root of it. Everything in nature has meaning. Everything. How could it not? God made it all. He gave us free will, so there's something unpredictable and adventurous about our lives, right? You have a grandchild and suddenly your life gets turned upside down or your, your wife has to go into surgery and suddenly you can't take her for granted anymore. You have, to, you have to turn your life upside down to take care of her. I mean, you think about caretakers and what goes on in their lives and how, how hard it has to be, particularly for the caretaker. Um, um, Christ gave us free will and, and situated us in a contingent world so we have freedoms all around. It's easy for us to dismiss things. Oh, she pricked herself, get a band-aid, you know. What the poets have been showing us all along <laughs> is there's nothing that happens that doesn't mean. And it changes the way we see and the way we feel. Okay? So hold on to that because we're going to take it into the Paradiso in a second. But right now, I just want to read Supernatural Love again. And pay attention to the way in which things speak. The last thing I'll say about this, um, I didn't see it at first when I read the poem, but I saw it eventually. One of the other beauties about this poem, I believe, is that it, um, how to put this, it's a founding moment. It lines up with what we've talked about with the epics. All epics are about foundings. If I'm right on this, I think the, the importance of this poem for her is that it fixes her calling as a poet. At the very end of the poem, she's going to talk about blossoms. In, incarnation bloom from roots that bore. She's going to learn early on, and I don't, and not intellectually, she doesn't understand it conceptually the way we do. She understands it intuitively the way a child would. That her calling is established here. Her love of words, her love of things, and her recognition or in, intuition that things speak made clear her calling. She will go on to be a poet. How could she not at four years old doing this? She couldn't be farther away from her father, who's an intellectual, who loves words. But she's, and, and, I, and I believe she couldn't have done this without him, because he is an intellectual, he loves words. But what she's doing with him is so different from what he does with him. So at the core of this poem, I think, is the calling of a poet early in life. Okay? <clears throat> Supernatural love. My father at the dictionary stand touches the page to fully understand the lap-lit answer. Tilting in his hand his slowly scanning magnifying lens, a blurry glistening circle he suspends above the word, carnation. Then he bends so near his eyes are magnified and blurred, one finger on the miniature word, as if he touched a single key and heard a distant plucked infinitesimal string the obligation due to everything that's smaller than the universe. 
that speaks off the page. I bring my sewing needle close enough that I can watch my father through the needle's eye as through a lens ground for a butterfly he peers down flower hallways towards a room shadowed and fathom as this study's gloom where a scholar bends above a tomb to read what's buried there. He bends to pour over the Latin blossom. I am four. I spill my pins and needles on the floor trying to stitch beloved X by X. My dangerous bright needles point connects myself illiterate to this perfect text I cannot read. My father puzzles why it is my habit to identify carnations as Christ's flowers, knowing I can give no explanation, but because, what else is a four-year-old to say? Because, this is studying. By the way, you all know carnation means flesh, in flesh. So the, the word incarnation means in flesh, in pink. God enfleshed himself. She has no clue, but something's resonating in her at four. She can't explain it, but the father's aware, and this is what's the irony. He should know the meaning as a, as a scholar, but he doesn't. So he goes to the dictionary to look it up. What's interesting, he's going to not only look up the word incarnation, he'll see it means in, enfleshed, because carnation means flesh or pinkish. But he's going to look it up in the French, and the French clue has meanings that are relevant to what happens in the poem. So just keep that in mind when you, and he can't, he's puzzling why this little girl is so fascinated with carnations. What a beautiful poem. Um, um, my father puzzles why it is my habit to identify carnations as Christ flowers, knowing I can give no explanation but because. Word roots blossom in speechless messages the way the thread behind my sampler does where following each X, I awkward move my needle through the word whose root is love. He reads, a pink variety of clove. Carnatio, the Latin meaning flesh. As if the bud's essential oils brush Christ's fragrance through the room. There it is again, speaking or smelling into words. The iron-fresh odor carnations have floats up to me, a drifted secret bitter ecstasy. The stems squeak in my scissors. Child, it's me. He turns the page to clove and reads aloud, the clove a spice dried from a flower bud. Then twice, as if he hasn't understood, he reads from the French for clue, meaning a nail. He gazes motionless, meaning a nail. The incarnation blossoms, flesh and nail. I twist my threads like stems into a knot and smooth beloved. But my needle caught within the threads, thy blood so dearly bought. Speaking again. The needle strikes my fingers to the bone. I lift my hand, it is myself I've sewn. The flesh laid bare, the threads of blood my own. I lift my hand in startled agony and call upon his name, Daddy, Daddy. My father's hand touches the injury as lightly as he touched the page before, where incarnations bloom from roots that bore the flowers I called Christ when I was four. God, that poem undoes me. Let's see, who does this? Me. God. Anybody want to comment on the poem? Gets better every time you read it. Is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs>
<laughs> good. It's like good wine. Yeah. Read it again in another year, it'll get even better. Mm-hmm. It's a profound poem. It's a really profound. It, you know, and one of the things that I don't want to spend any time here, but one of the things that's lovely about it is there's such a gap between father, between generations, parents and children. We all know about that gap, I think. There's such a gap. And you, I, it's hard for me to believe the father doesn't quite get it. He doesn't, you know, he's an intellectual and it's in his head. But still, when she says, Daddy, Daddy, he rushes to her. And he's as gentle with her as you would, you know, that you can feel a father's tenderness. However much he doesn't see, he's still tender of her. You know, there's a, just love speaks everywhere through this poem. Particularly in a little, remember, this is a woman who's later, she's looking back. And so there's that age, you know, she's, she obviously can see things as a woman that she didn't see before. One last thing, and then the, I've used the word palimpsest. Do you all know what a palimpsest is? The old manuscripts in the ancient days um, used to take a, a palimpsest, a page, and, and overlay it on a previous text to replace it. So, what in a sense, it's a palimpsest in this sense. This is the reality today of a woman writing about an event that took place when she was four. But it overlays an event in Palestine 2,000 years ago. Palestine is speaking everywhere through it. Paul's letters, Christ, crucifixion, love, the tomb, you know, the gloom, um, and love emerging from it. Um, so it's as if two time periods collapse into one. In that moment, she's back with Christ on the cross. So the poems are layered like that. You know that. We've been talking about that since the Iliad and the Odyssey, that, that so often there's one meaning on a surface, but there's so much more going on underneath. <coughs> so just like life, just like life. How are you all doing? You doing all right? We're, we're, you know, we're still planning to meet next week. We're going to meet on Monday evening, even though it's a confession night. But, and so we'll meet next Friday. Okay, the editorial. Um, I had this thing printed off. Um, I asked you about it, and and I, I, I think we handed them out Monday night, but um, I forgot because Suzanne was down. Half, half of me, you all know that already, half of me is not here, so. <laughs> <laughs> and you know in lots of ways it's the better half. Mm-hmm. Here, um, I'm going to do it next week, but I, what I did was put some schemes and some notes down just for you to have them available so you didn't have to go to the study guide, because I really want you to have these schemes. What you're going to learn when you look at it is the Trinity is a, is a um, structural principle in the Paradiso, just as it was in the Purgatory and the Inferno, and I just want you to keep that in your mind. But I'll, 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 I'll bring it next week. Um, very quickly, a review. Major questions that I, I want everybody to keep in mind. Major questions. Um, major questions. You all remember from the time we began the importance of the peripatia. Mm-hmm. 
the Peripatia. Right? The turn. Peripatia. The two major, two of the major terms that we got from Aristotle in his works on the poetics um, were anagnorisis, peripatia. Anagnorisis means recognition, to see. Peripatia means a turn. Right? We've been through this. Anagnorisis. A recognition. Oedipus goes through his life thinking he sees everything, has everything under control, and he suddenly discovers that he killed his father and slept with his mother. Imagine, imagine that turn. Yeah. Um, we use the word in the church metanoia, turn to convert, to turn. At the center of our faith is a belief that conversion should never stop. If, if we ever think we've reached it, <laughs> We're back in the beginning thinking we're proud and have everything under control and, you know, I mean, e either we go on to live in mystery or we're living a lie. Conversions are supposed to be ongoing. But the principle of the peripatia is really important. Yeah, we've talked about it. Every major work. There's not a play that Shakespeare wrote that, that doesn't move on the principle of the peripatia. It turns. Every play. Comedies have a turning moment. Tragedies have a turning moment. Remember how important this is, and I want, I want to keep this straight because it's so important to me because it's so often badly understood. Most people think of tragedies as bad. Aristotle didn't. I don't. Tragedies show us the worst about ourselves and a turn. And that turn it represents a restoration, a recovery of reason and balance. Oedipus sees he killed his father if you know Oedipus Rex, you know the play begins with a, um, a plague um, destroying Thebes. And he wants to get to the cause of the plague. He's, a, he's an intellectual. He wants to get to the bottom of it, straighten this out. He's a king. He wants a man. I want to straighten it out. Um, so he does everything he can to straighten it out. And, and at some point, and it, gradually people begin to be aware he doesn't know the dangers he's facing, and some people do. And when they suggest that he might be wrong, he just gets furious, blows up at them. Because he's so committed to so committed to doing right. I mean, on the surface, he's a good man doing what men want to do, or women. I want to get to the bottom and straighten this out, make it good. Um, but at some point, um, he discovers, late in the play, that he, in fact, is the cause of the plague. The gods are angry because he killed his father. He didn't know the king was his father when he killed this man, and um, slept with his mom. Freud took that up and made too much of it, and what makes me sick about that is that Sophocles, early on in his career, Sophocles went on to write Oedipus at Colonus, where, Colon where Oedipus is taken up by the gods. Freud leaves that out. I mean, Freud wants us to see the worst things about ourselves and ignores the good things that are blessings from the gods. So, the peripatia is crucial. You, um, Aristotle said um, it's crucial because it, 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 it's a reaffirmation of reason when we have every, every reason to believe there's nothing good to live for. You know, when you see how bad your sins are, I mean, one of the things you want to do is go kill yourself. It's an act of despair. When Oedipus learns his fault, he blinds himself. And most moderns look at that as grotesque. 
my attitude towards that is he's an extraordinarily beautiful man with blood pouring, it's Christ on the cross, with blood pouring out of his eyes, he sees more, more deeply, more truthfully than anybody else in the play, even the prophet Theseus, right? And he sees, he sees, the, how many people see the truth about themselves? So he's an extraordinarily beautiful man, and, and Sophocles follows that up because in Oedipus at Colonus, he's the only one who has the wisdom that his daughters and his, son, his sons are killing himself in war. Um, so he's, what, what Sophocles shows us is that there's extraordinary wisdom that can come out of suffering. So tragedies are not about futility or waste or um, the inescapable fact of sin. To, nothing can answer it. If anything, it, it's, it's an affirmation that sin does exist in the world and will be answered. Something will come. So, peripety is important, okay? It's been with us all along. The reason I'm bringing it up this morning is this. A major peripety, I didn't talk about it that way, but a, a major peripety took place in the shift from the inferno to the purgatorio, right? We left a world of hell where people have lost the good of their intellect. They don't even understand that they don't understand, right? They don't even know that they don't know. They're using their intellect, this is really important, they're using their minds in twisted ways. That's hell. They want justice, that's what they've got. Right? Dante and Virgil leave that world and go into the in, into, into a world, a purgatorial world. And it's a world in which men are not relieved of the responsibility for their sins. They're held to them. There are laws. You can't ignore them. And notice God doesn't just forgive and wipe away. These people have to learn to do penance for the laws they broke. So a mercy without a law, I've gone over this, I've harped on it because of my fears about our own culture. A mercy without a law is a disaster. It doesn't exist. Mercy has no meaning without reference to a law. Something's broken. Something has to be paid for. But what's going on in the purgatory is a mercy is helping them. Um, it, it's offering something they couldn't come to on their own. It's from God. So they're picking up their sins, they're doing penance, and they're, and they're learning to grow. Remember, as I've presented, they're learning to grow in this wholeness that we've lost. They're learning to put their blindness away, their deafness away, even though you can see it here, right? With each act of penance, um, a sin is being stripped away, and they're recovering something of that wholeness they once had in Eden. You were in here, and I want you to, I want you to hold on to this. Remember, I talked about it. I'm going to go th over it for a second. Um, remember the, the difficulty of trying to grasp the nature of the Trinity, Saint, as St. Saint Thomas did. Remember, St. Thomas says, God the Father, this is so important, God the Father is not more or less than the Son and Spirit. We think, we think in limited terms because we're in a material world, so we think one is less than two and three. Right? So, thinking that way, we think the Father's less than Son and Spirit combined. Okay? That's just natural. One penny's less than two, two pennies. Okay? Everybody's following, right? And two pennies is more than one. He says the Father is not more or less than the whole of the Trinity itself. Because 
God is being itself, and they indwell. So each one of them is as great as, as the whole of the Trinity itself. It can't be less. The relationship between the Son and Father is not one of superiority or inf inferiority. It expresses a relationship of origins. When the Father conceived of himself, remember, he's, he's all being eternally. He is being itself. He wasn't created. When he conceives of himself, he conceives his son. He, the son is an image of just when we, you know, when you sit down and write a paper, and you have a concept in your head. That concept is the father or the son. You're the origin. You have a concept. You have to flesh it out. You have to, you know, the pain of that. I mean, high, high school of writing papers. You had an idea in your head, but it wouldn't become fully real until it was incarnated, given words, so you could. See, because I know all of you know, halfway through the paper, you'd say, no, no, that's not quite it, and you'd change it. Or The Father's concept of himself is the Son. It's the idea, the image, and the relationship between them is the power or the love between them. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So one of them is not more or less than the others. They're one. The, Father, the Son is as great as the Father and Spirit. The same with the Spirit. Okay, so when we talk about wholeness, God, this is just stunning. When we talk about wholeness, it's not going back to a wholeness understood in quantitative terms. It's a wholeness like that wholeness in the Trinity. When humans return to heaven and one person enters paradise, it won't be paradise plus one. When that soul enters paradise, that's what happens in heaven will be exponential because that one soul will be indwelling in every other one and every other will be indwelling in him. It'll be a wholeness of the kind we can't even, it's hard for us to imagine, although Dante's done it. So everybody following. Yeah. So the wholeness that people are trying to recover is a wholeness that represents an overcoming of the subject-object, me, you. I, ob subject-object. That dichotomy separates us. The church is, you know this, the church is calling us in our marriages to become one flesh. Mm -hmm. To become one. There's no way to do that except in love. We cannot do it as an idea. Love is unity. It brings us together. We all know that. So the whole journey of purgatorio um, is a struggle to recover that wholeness. And in, in that sense, it's not just going back to... Um, Eden, it's going forward because the happiness that man will know will be greater for the sins he's experienced. Because he will have something Adam and Eve never did before the fall. Right? Not only, not only will, the, will the wholeness be greater because it, it, it carries the sins having been overcome, but it carries Christ as the means of that redemption. So whatever greatness they recover, whatever wholeness they recover, will be far greater than the wholeness that Adam and Eve originally had. That's where we're going. Okay? So there was this peripatia from the inferno to the purgatorio. Right? Now what happens here from the purgatorio to the paradiso, I'm going to argue, makes that other peripatia pale. And I want to try to explain why, but it's going to take a couple of minutes. Is everybody following where I'm going? There's a peripatia occurring here. 
and I think it's it's easy to miss, and I'll explain why. But anyway, that's I want to get to that because I think it, it's if we don't see that, the, the the extraordinary things about the Paradiso will be missed. When you talk about the uh, peripatia from <clears throat> hell into purgatory, I thought people in purgatory and hell couldn't go into purgatory. I they thought once you're in hell, you're down. They are. Now, Dante went in there because was, this is the story, right? but in normal sense. So it's a turn for him, but in the real sense of hell and purgatory, there is no turn. Right. Okay. And I, sorry, Dave, that's a good question. It, um, I'm thinking of the peripatia in terms of the poem and action, okay. you know, that we're... Okay. But, but I, assuming, too, that we relate it to life, the way you're doing right now. Mm -hmm. that there, there's no peripatia for the souls in hell, they're there. Mm -hmm. But there's a peripatia in the story, and presumably in Dante, because he, remember, Beatrice wanted him to see hell. He was, he was on his way to being damned. Mm -hmm. um, so he's learning to see, he's turning. He's, he's leaving that infernal world and entering a purgatorial world. Okay, so with that in mind, hold on to that, okay? Here's where we're going. I hope this is as big to you as it is to me, because it's amazing to me. But Here's some of the questions that I asked last week that I want to try to answer right now. What, what's the meaning of Virgil's going back? And I, I think we talked about this, but I, I just have to underscore this. Um, Virgil's with Dante um, until the time that Beatrice approaches and when she comes he turns to Virgil for help and he's gone. So what, what, what's the meaning of that disappearance? That's one. I want to come back to this. We've already talked about it but I want to go back just briefly. What's the meaning of Beatrice's coming? And more importantly since Dante was already purged, we know that because when he arrives at the earthly paradise Virgil says, I crown and miter you. Do whatever you will. Love and do what you will. He's gone through purgatory in his imagination. The peas have been raised. You know that when he and Beatrice meets, she's going to scathe him. Just take him apart. He's going to pass out again. Again. He's so embarrassed, so ashamed. And he'll have to be dipped in the two rivers, Lethe and Unoe. And when he's done that, um, and he's suffered what he should suffer. We have to say, how can that be? Because he already went through purgatory. Um, he and Beatrice will send into the, into the heavens and, and she will hand him off to Bernard, Bernard at the end, and who will take Dante to God and see God. So the, the poem will end with Dante being with God and then coming back to the earth. Um, why is it Beatrice, one, and why is it not Christ? If he's pured and he's ready to go to God, what's all this stuff about? I would think Protestants would be offended at this. I'm going to make this point. This is stunning to me. It's so revealing. Where's Christ? <coughs> His Savior. <coughs> why this woman? <coughs> From a Protestant perspective, isn't this the Catholic dim diminishing the value of Christ by letting a a woman, a human, greet him at this point? Because we know as soon as he leaves the earthly paradise, he's in heaven. He's going to go through the planets, but the way in which he goes through them shows that it's heaven. Picarda will be the first person he meets. She's in heaven. So every soul he meets along the way is in heaven. 
then why not Christ? Isn't this all a lot of elaborate, nothing, preoccupation with beauty or reason or... What in the world is Dante doing? Okay, major question for me. Um, okay, let me, let me read, a, I want to take, and we never, we still have not gotten to the poems, the poets, mm-hmm. God. Um, just for me to get realistic, to get out of my, what you guys will probably call my bubble world, just know that we will probably be in the Paradiso for the next nine months. <laughs> <laughs> I do everything I can to say four weeks, four weeks. Suzanne keeps going, too long, too long. <laughs> oh, gosh. Here, turn to 342. This is important because um, in this, three thirty. Hold on to three forty two. Three thirty. Dante is going to be at the level of the um, the gluttonous, and he will meet a poet, Bonagianta, who speaks about another poet, and that will be the first moment when a poet. Um, takes on a really important role in what's about to happen. And as you know, as I've said, there will be a gathering of poets, six of them, one mentioned at seven, at, on the level of a, a lustful. And my question is, what's going on? Why is Dante? He's too great a poet. So, you know, six poets gathering in one scene? There's nothing like this in any other scene. In the, so what's he doing? But here... On 3.30, he meets with Bonagianta, a poet, just hold on to that. And then back on 3.42, go back to that. Dante says towards the bottom, um, O souls assured entering beatitude, wherever it may be, I did not leave my body, green or right, below on earth, I have it with me here. He's answering the wonder that people are experiencing with Dante present. You remember that one of the things that Dante is experiencing, one of the things we should be experiencing at every level is wonder. Every level presents us with something mysterious. Hell is not full of wonder. Hell is full of ironies. Remember I talked about that. The mode of knowledge in hell is irony. Irony is easy. Anybody can be ironic. Expressing wonder, you have to almost be like a child. You have to let your intellect go some and enter into a mystery, a want to, to, to feel a wonder about it. Dante says, I'm here in my body because, and we will learn later from Beatrice that um, he had to learn to see hell and go up purgatory to save his soul. He says, I have it with me here. It's real flesh, complete with blood and bones. I climb to cure my blindness. Now, everybody underscore that. Remember, Dante can see, right? He can hear. He's fine. He probably got 20-20 vision. He knows he's blind. Because the issue here is not just seeing with our physical eyes, but seeing with spiritual eyes. That means getting past, no, seeing in the physical, that's so important, not past, seeing in the physical a spiritual reality. For that, you have to have a spiritual sight. 
So when he says, I'm come here to clear my, cure my blindness, it's not because there's an optometrist on purgatory. <laughs> right? It's, he's trying to recover a dimension of light from the eyes and the mind that he lost with the fall, all of us. Um, let's see. Um, Dante, remember, sleeps on the ledge of the blissful and dreams of um, Leah and Rachel, who are images of the contemplative active life in the church, because it's important to pull those two together. And I think it's important to remember that the active life always supports the contemplative. The contemplative is higher, because the, the contemplative asks that we see things through a spiritual sight, that we pray, that we meditate on God. It's a way of getting away from the world. So the active life is essential. The, the contemplative life feeds it to protect it, but the active life also supports the contemplative life. It makes it possible. But the end, the higher power is the contemplative life, that we rest in God. We are one with God. We don't let the world take us over. He has the dream, and then he and Virgil and Stasius ascend to the earthly paradise on page 351. Once they get there, Dante feels this air. He sees this beauty everywhere around him. There's a scent to everything. It, it is next to heaven. This is paradise. There's no difficulties, no storms, no tempests, no. This is the, the, the air smells. There's an aroma to it. Um, Everything about it gives off a loveliness. And this woman, Matilda, who is like a, a gracious hostess, to, greets him and then will take him to Beatrice. But here on page 351, Virgil says, You now have seen my son, the temporal and the eternal fire. You've reached the place where my discernment now has reached its end. I led you here with skill and intellect from here on. Let your pleasure be your guide. Go down. Expect no longer words or sights from me. Now is your will upright, wholesome, and free. And not to heed its pleasure would be wrong. This is St. Augustine. Love and do what you will. To not do what you want in love is an undercutting of love. When the soul is completed, it, it shouldn't do anything else. Whatever it wills will be good. I crown and mitre you. Lord of yourself. Now going over to 365. Now, Dante is taken out into this meadow and he watches this uh, Beatrician pageant. Beatrice is in a chariot drawn by a griffin. The griffin is dual in nature, a lion and an eagle, representing the nobility of Christ, the twin nature of Christ. Everybody in the procession represents symbolically something from the Old and New Testaments. There are three figures on three ladies on one side, four on the other. The, the four are the natural virtues. Temperance, justice, courage, prudence. Because you know, on earth, we're supposed to be doing everything we can to be virtuous, to be good. We should, whatever our sins are, we're supposed to be countering them with a virtue. That's, remember, we, everything of purgatory showed us that. What's the, what's, the, what's the virtue that answers pride? Humility. Humility. It means carrying burdens. You, don't want to, you, you, think, you, you think you're above. I shouldn't have to do that. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to be carrying these burdens to help us become humbler, to do the things that we don't want to do. 
Aristotle said, you know virtue's coming when you begin to enjoy things that are hard for you. It's, you mean, when you ask kids to take out the gar garbage and they're grumbling, they're not quite virtuous yet. <laughs> if a day comes and, and they say, I want to take, but I'm not kidding about this. I take, you know, I take this absolutely serious. When a day, if a day comes and the child says, glad to do it, mom or dad, that kid is virtuous. My dad used to call me a half doer. And then one day he called me a whole doer. Yeah, yeah, yeah good. Oh, very wow. thing. Good, yeah, yeah, yeah. very thing. Yeah. Mary Ann, um, Don's wife, sits in front of us in Mass all the time. She said the other day, this to me was a lovely example. She's how old? She's all right. She said, you know, it was I, feel like, I feel something strange happening to me. She said, because every once in a while Don will ask her to do something. And it means she can't do other things. She's involved in hospitality, and I think if he asks, she lets the hospitality know she has to help her husband. Um, she said, something strange has happened to me. He asked me to pick up some pails, and she, I guess these two heavy pails of something. She said, I was really glad to do it. <laughs> I thought to myself, not strange at all. And so, I mean, how, what, what can you not say of goodness in a gesture like that? She was happy. And clearly she knew that a week before, if she'd asked her to do it, she probably would have been grumbling. I mean, I'm assuming, because she said, what's wrong with me? <laughs> Nothing's wrong with her. Everything right about you. Um, Okay, Beatrice is coming. There are the natural virtues on one side and the supernatural on faith, hope, and charity. There are all the books of the Old Testament, the, all the gospel writers, and um, Luke and John. Um, and I think I said this to you. It, it's the Mass. And it's so important to see this. It's not the Mass as, it's get, as it gets broken up week by week by week. Once again, What's happening to Dante is he's beginning to experience a wholeness to things that we don't have. We get a mass in part. The whole mass is present. It's absolutely crucial to see that. The mass is not a, a, a mere formality or a ritual the way it is, the way Protestants think about it. It is a celebration of Christ in his sacrifice, in its wholeness. So it's there. So Beatrice is a Christ-bearer. She's bringing Christ to Dante. Now, I want to come back to this. I'm not going to answer it now, but why, be it, why is Christ not there? <coughs> Beatrice is bringing an image of him in the griffin in herself. She's a Christ bearer. Why not Christ? Presumably he's been purified. So, so we, we've got to hold on to that question. To me, it's major. She approaches, and Dante begins to look at her with the eyes with which he looked at her when he was a young man and she was a young girl when he fell in love with her, when he was smitten by her. Smitten is not too glib, when he fell in love with her. 365, and instantly though many years had passed since I last trembling before her eyes captured by adoration, stunned by awe, my soul that could not see her perfectly still felt succumbing to her mystery and power the strength of its enduring love. No sooner were my eyes struck by the force of the high piercing virtue that I had known before I quit my boyhood years, then I turned to the left with all the confidence that makes a child. And remember, Virgil has just crowned and mitered him. He's a man in the natural order. He's manly, do whatever you want. That makes a child run to its mother's arms when he's frightened or needs comforting. 
So in the presence of Beatrice, he's reduced to a child. He turns, he turns to Virgil as a child turns to his mother. There's no contempt here. But think about the ironies, because the ironies are deep. To say to Virgil, not one drop of blood is left inside my veins that does not throb, I recognize signs of the ancient flame. And we've got to answer the question what this ancient flame is, because right now it's overpowering him. And, and we're to understand he's already gone through purgation. So let me stop um, here. At the bottom of 366, Beatrice looks at him. Dante's feeling the sternness, he said, the sternness of a regal face, the regal sternness of her face. Yes, look at me. Yes, I am Beatrice. I hope everybody can hear a scolding mother. This is a Beatrice to Dante, a man. And the tone is the tone of a scolding mother. Um, yes, look at me. Yes, I am Beatrice. So you at last deigned to climb the mountain. Oh, you condescended, did you, to join us finally? Uh, the scorn. You learned at last that here lies human bliss. She's really angry. 368, towards the bottom. Um, Beatrice says to him, I um, when I passed into my second age and changed my life for life, that man you see straight, straight after others and abandoned me. When I had risen from the flesh to spirit, become more beautiful, more virtuous, he found less pleasure in me and loved me less. And so he turned to other pleasures, presumably other women. <coughs> and we know Dante was married. He, he did marry Beatrice, but he... He did marry a woman, and he continued to love Beatrice as she was for him, I've said this, enemies of the Trinity. She awakened in Dante a sense of something divine in a woman that changed his life. Um, but she says, instead of following me when I died and became more virtuous, more beautiful, right? Because when she ascends into heaven, she's going to lose her earthly frailties, weaknesses, imperfections. And instead of loving her more, he abandoned her. So she has nothing good to say to Dante. Uh, <coughs> at the top of 369, to such depths did he sink that finally there was no other way to save his soul except to have him see the damned in hell. That's why. Dante will pass out in a minute. He's so stunned. But So two questions. Let's pick them up. And I know you were here, so... Don't say anything. Be still. <laughs> I'll sell the answer if you want to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? Why? What is what? I think we've talked about. I just I, so I think you all know because we already talked. But I just want to underscore it. I want to make sure everybody's okay. Why does Virgil leave? Virgil just shortly in the passage that I read a minute said, "My son." This is son. Virgil loves Dante. Dante loves virtue. He calls him father, guide, master. He can't love a poet almost more than he does virtue. Virtue is his life. The, one of the most positive ways I can put it is there's no way Dante would have gotten to this point, no way he would have returned to earthly paradise without Virgil. Allegorically, what does it mean that he has to leave? And why at this moment when he's in the presence of Beatrice? Because it, remember, when he sees her, his knees shake, He's so he's overcome with trembling. He looks to Virgil. What did the angel say when they entered the gate? Don't look back. Don't look back. Dante looks to Virgil. Gone. And we know Virgil's back in hell. So, what do we make of this? Reason only takes you so far. You need more. Yeah. You need the grace of God. Right. Right. I think that's the answer. Let me, I want to underscore it. Let me try to make this as large as I can. 
because to me it's huge. Um, I want to I want to make this as great as I can. There's no way Dante could have arrived at this point without Virgil. He's taken him back to paradise. You can't say enough about the good of this. He's going to go back to the level of the virtuous pagans. Remember, he's not going to be punished. He'll go back there. They're not punished. They're just there. Because virtue by itself is not enough to get man into heaven. But he's great enough to do that. Dante loves him. He wouldn't have had a life as a poet without Virgil. Everything in the world he owes to him. If we don't see that, we don't see the importance of that moment. Because what's happening at this moment is that kind of reason, however great it is, however good it is, however much good in it, has to be put away before Dante can go on. Does that mean he's not going to take reason with him? Absolutely not. But it does mean that kind of reason that's rooted in the world, the worldliness that the whole purgatory was meant to do away with. So long as reason is rooted in that, it will not allow a person to go on. So just think about the way we use reason to argue, to justify, to quarrel, to condemn. And set against that, remember Dante's description of the women in uh, Florence. Ladies who, who have the intelligence of love. Most people don't associate intelligence with love. The Platonic world does. I'm, when we get to the poets, I'll make that clear. Ladies who have the intelligence of love. That means those women distinguish themselves from other women because the way they use their minds is rooted in love. I try to imagine the difference between an intellect that's rooted in love, the way it will see things, and an intellect that's rooted in self-centeredness, self-justifying, whatever that reason does, um, the difference between those two kinds of reasons. What's crucial right now is that allegorically, the peripatia that's taking place is Dante's turning from a reason that's steeped in worldliness um, to enter a world um, in which reason will still be alive, because Beatrice will be explaining things the whole, the whole journey, but it will be a reason imbued with faith. So on the, if we see the Divine Comedy in terms of a spiritual journey of the soul, which is partly what it is, this marks a peripatia. It's a, a point at which the person doesn't stop using reason, but what's behind it is love now. A love of things, a love of another, more than oneself. It's so crucial, it's so crucial to see this. The Protestant, the mainline, mainstream Protestant, <coughs> sees reason as corrupt. This is the only way that I can put it strongly enough. Remember, the Protestant sees the effect of the fall as depravity. It's complete. We're depraved. So there's no logos in the natural order. Reason's not good. It's only reason infused by Christ. So the, there's a tendency in the modern world to look at faith as blind. Lots of secular skeptics or agnostics will condemn the Christian world because they'll think of as reason as blind. I think that's a, a byproduct of the Protestant world. Faith isn't blind. Reason and faith go hand in hand through the whole journey from beginning to end. Watch Beatrice think. Explanations are not going to stop with Virgil. She's going to be explaining everything. But she's going to, she's going to be taking Dante to see 
a dimension of reality beyond anything that Virgil could have shown her. So we become aware through this peripatia of a blindness, that even though reason can see there are certain things it cannot see, and Beatrice will open that up for him. So it's a major turning point, and it's absolutely crucial. I, I can't put this strongly enough. I mean, think, think of it this way. If, if you're used to, you, if you think you've got a good mind, afraid to take myself as a gamble, but I know it. If you think you have a good mind and you're used to seeing things and then you reach a point of saying, holy cow, watching what's going on with Dante, it, and is the way that I'm using reason in love, you know, or am, am I trying to show how smart I am, or right, or how wrong you are, or this is the way, or, you know, whatever, you, um, however we use, to go on in the, on the spiritual journey means a, a real change, a peripatia, a turning. It doesn't mean reason quiets or goes to sleep at all, but it does mean, for anybody reading this seriously, that there comes a point where we have to ask ourselves, is what we're doing in love for the good of another, for... And remember for Dante, all that we've learned, does that mean doing away with laws? No. Does it mean doing away with our nature or God's order? No. Because there's intelligence and reason in all of it. The question is whether we bring his love to what we do in, you know, in, in our world. Is that clear? Any questions? You all look so quiet. Barbara, do you have something? There's something there, Quan. Okay, so when you're you were talking about God, God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Okay. And so you were saying that the Father, because of our the way we think, the Father is less because it would be one than the Son and the Spirit. What would be I, two. Yeah, but I, what I grew up with was the Father is the, um, the most powerful. And the son was I didn't I didn't have the same thought process as you were talking about. I understand right. where you get it then, yeah. but it's just that I didn't have that. Yeah. But, but you understand that. how important this is and why. Because I mean the best way to think about it is remember what distinguishes the persons is relationships, not better or worse. How can it, they're they're all one way. The the God in the Old Testament. I am that am. Those are his words to Moses, remember? The people ask who I am, I am that am. He's saying, I am being itself, not created. There's nothing outside of him, nothing. He created things, ex nihilo, himself. He was, no, there was nothing existing before him, or he would be less than them. God is all being. If the relationship, and so if the Son and Spirit share that relationship, they are all being too. So there's nothing, and wait, hold on, keep, keep clear the difference between the Christ and the Son. The Son is one with the Father, consubstantial with Him. The Holy Spirit is one with the Father and Son. He represents their love. But there's nothing that the Father and Son have that the Spirit doesn't have, because He's one in being, just as they are. That's why Thomas said, the Father's not more or less than the other two combined. He's one with being just as the other two are. They are one because they perfectly indwell with each other. 
So the Father's not greater, can't be, or we're back in a worldly way of thinking where we put containers, you know, boundaries on things. They perfectly indwell with each other. So whatever the Spirit does, and remember, when Christ commissions the Spirit, weird under, I don't think the Jewish people or the Islamic people will understand this, but when he commissions the Spirit, the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Christ commissioned him. He carries Christ with him. Can he carry Christ with him and not the Father? Absolutely not. Is there any way the Father can do anything without carrying the Son? Absolutely not. The Son's one with his nature. Stop it. I mean, to get this clear, is there anything, I'm a father, is there anything a son of mine can carry that's not me? No, because he's different from me. Even though he might be an image of me or carry something of me, there's something going to be absolutely unique because we're not subsistent. We're not an eternity. We don't we don't share a subsistent eternal nature. We're contingent. We're we're born into a world. So however much my son carries something of me, he will be something different himself. Otherwise we'd just be duplicating ourselves like machines. Um is that I, yeah I do I get it. I think I get it. Um, the other thing that occurs to me is that if when we go to heaven, exponentially heaven is greater, then we better, you know? Oh, yeah. Okay. Then we better learn how to love our neighbor. <laughs> because <laughs> otherwise we're going to become part of somebody we don't like. <laughs> well, that's one way to say it. I don't think anybody's going to be in heaven who doesn't. I mean, I hope that's sort of self-evident. Nobody will be in heaven with imperfections or hates. We will not be in Christ's presence without a perfect love. And that means whatever happens in heaven, we don't have to try to... We will do that, or we won't be there. Okay, and that's what purgatory is for. Yes. About. Yeah, I'm sure. Okay. Well, wait, hold on. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, all that you're saying is right on. And that's why we should take purgatory seriously now, because we've been asked, love God, love your neighbor, now. The church, or purgatory, as I've suggested, is an image of the church on earth. That, and we're supposed to be doing that. That should make up our days with each other, whatever we're doing. I think part of the dilemma I've had, and, and I'm not going to say that it's gone away totally, but over time, you look at the hierarchy that we have as human beings, the fathers here, sons underneath. Okay? I'm the father. I'm older than you, so you're right. subordinate. Then you say the son... Jesus is the Son of God. So when he goes back to heaven, they say he sits at the right hand of God. They don't say he indwells with God. So right. there's a lot of things right. that lead you down a path right. that creates difficulty in yep. what you're saying. That frames the way you look at yes. it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Absolutely. And, yeah. and it's been, you know, I always hear this three persons in one. I go, well, they're not people, they're not persons. So your your uh, presentation, the things you said, make a lot of sense. Yeah, and it it has to undo what I've learned before. Yeah, for the whole church. I mean, how many people? I mean, I've said this before. It really is a source of grief. I really wish I could get somebody to put the audios of this online, free, um, because I wish kids and adults who want to look into this, you know, 
Dan, when we first started out, was doing it. He put it on a line, and that stopped. I'm just so sad about what happened. But it was online. And I thought, God, how great. Because the church doesn't teach things this way. And, and it's not from any ill will. or no. It's not. It's just a, you know, that line from St. Thomas. You'd think that everybody would know that when they're in, in theology school. I'm not even sure that priests quite get it in the way that it's presented in theology school. I don't know, but you don't hear that enough. You know, when, on, on Trinity weekend, very often priests will avoid it because it's such a difficult, or they'll skim over it. Mm -hmm. There's lots of simple things you can say, the way we're doing here, that, that could help people look at things differently. Lois, you had a question? I don't have a question. I, um, when you first asked the que question, why Beatrice? Yeah. Um, and not Christ or whatever. Mm -hmm. I first thought that came to my mind because she's like Mary. Mary brought Christ in the world to us, and so Beatrice is kind of like the mother bringing us to Christ. And so I, I, this is what I thought of at first. Yeah. But, um, I don't think so. I, well, They're going to meet Mary shortly. I know. And I, Beatrice I, will take Dante there. But I think um, she was learning from her. <laughs> I'm going to get to that right now, but okay. did you have something? Well, back to your point about um, uh, your your reason and using your reason with love and not not your ego. What Paul calls the flesh, the world, and yeah. mm -hmm. what Paul calls the flesh, the world, flesh yeah, worldliness, whatever. I, I think that is so difficult. It is unbelievably difficult, and and you know I was thinking through. I'm thinking, okay, so are you going to appear to be really a milk toast kind of person because you don't, you know, if somebody confronts you, how do you use your reason in, in arguing in love? Right. And and stop for a second. So answer that. Love them and not necessarily what they're saying is the only thing I can think of. Is or that get past yourself. You don't have to win. Because, here. Well, no, and it's, it's, it, that's true. And, it's, and that's what's very difficult is, is to, because if somebody really, your humanness comes through and it's, it's if you're being confronted, you're right. you want to win. You want to win. I, example there. this morning, coming to Mass this morning. There was a lady who, she couldn't have been that far from my bumper. I kept, you mean behind you on the road? Yes. Oh, God, those people like, drive me I'm nuts. Going, slow down, slow down, slow down. In the mirror. So, yeah, yeah slow I do. down. And she probably thought I was waving at her. <laughs> well, it wasn't with love. I can tell you that it wasn't. And now I didn't, I didn't flip her off. I mean, I just slow down, slow down. And I mean, she was right there, yeah. and it was not with love. <laughs> it was. I'm very good. So you have what he's hard. saying is we're used to a flesh filter. Yes. You have to have Ex a love filter. Exactly, <laughs> and that filter. is so tough. I hear, I hear what you're saying. I understand oh, no, hey. that. Yeah. How do you do it? Let me let me give just another. I mean, I just reinforcing what I said a minute ago. I'm not taking away at all what you because <clears throat> at all. I mean, the same thing happens with me if somebody comes up in my rear. Oh, yeah. And, and I, I mean, I, Suzanne will start hearing me talking and her comment will be ignore them or slow, you know, or something. And not, I'm not going to do that if somebody's on my rear end. But I couldn't, I couldn't identify with that more. So I know we all know that. The answer to it is um, put ourselves away. I mean, truly. 
And it, does, it doesn't mean, I mean, that image, Father, I thought, did a really good job when he talked about um, Isaiah's turning the other cheek. <coughs> you know, it doesn't mean becoming a milksop. It doesn't mean accommodating. You, to turn the other cheek means you have to have such strength to deny yourself, to face what's going on without giving up. So you, you do want to confront a person. Let me give you just to back it up, because I'm, I'm sure I think the two of us would be. If somebody were in my face doing something confronting, my first response would be to really get angry. And I've done this enough to know. If I look back on that and regretted what I did, my regret would be that I didn't calm my anger to get myself out of the way so I could, and, and by the way, you know me, I'm not saying don't be angry, because I believe the sin, I believe that we don't get angry enough in our culture, because the culture is terrified of anger. But I believe wrath is a sin. So getting angry with somebody could be a virtue. I mean, if you're in danger and somebody, anger is appropriate to say stop. Anger is not an indication of a sin. The question is, when we respond to somebody, is are we doing it for ourselves, our own ego? Have we gotten rid of ourselves? Because my response is, in a danger, you want anger, but less than a danger, you want to be able to say something to somebody else with convictions, getting rid of yourself enough to be able to say what you can say to that person that should be said. Because either extreme, ignore it, blow up, is not going to help that person, no. and that person may not hear you anyway. But all of us, I think, are still obligated, if somebody's confronting us, to answer it, but not, you know, blowing up, um, running away. I mean, we've been over the Aristotelian mean. How, I mean, you've, you've hit it on the head. How easy is that? <laughs> that's why virtue, that's, that's why I just believe, I wish we could get started with our kids earlier. Mm -hmm. So the virtue is a lost, nobody, nobody give values that at all. But if, if we don't give our kids a help, and if we don't take it on an, on our age, I mean, I look at this group, you've already heard me say it, I'm amazed that you guys are still here. Just amazed. I mean, you're learning something, and obviously it has to have some influence in your life or you wouldn't be here. And one of the most important things would take seriously what we're learning and live them with our spouses, me with Suzanne, Suzanne with me, you know, all of you, with your children, with Jack, with Jack, Matt, you know, all of them. I mean, we're, um, and I think particularly for us, because at least Suzanne and I feel, I mean, we're, we so regret some of the things we did earlier that we don't want to, we don't want to go to our death. And it's not out of fear. It's, we want to try to be better to help do the things that we didn't. This stuff was not a part of my life growing up. The reason it means so much to me now is because it's so good. I wish kids could have this goodness. And, and education today, God. If I were a tyrant with what I feel about this, I would take 90% of the educators in our, um, in our school system and hang them. Bob. And by the way, and have no scruples about doing it. Yeah. How, wait, how's that for self-restraint and virtue? Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that you give here, though, God. is not just what to do, but it's how to do it. Right. Right. And, and having been in the corporate world, how to do it is twice as important as saying go do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's what that's what I get out of this. <clears throat> Yeah, there's well, two think, things. I neat. think you also uncover things. <coughs> you you bring to light things that we all probably know but don't acknowledge. True. Sure. 
And so it brings light to mm -hmm. them, and it's like, oh, hmm, yeah, okay. But the other thing is what, I'm, I know you know this, David, just, but knowing in our, that's one of the problems with education today. People, education doesn't deal with the human will very much. It wants people to be smart. Learning something in your mind and making it living, exactly. how to do it, what to do, and the right, is, I mean, you said it, it's so hard, so, so hard. Um, I'm so grateful that you guys are here sometimes because it, it's just it's a great <coughs> comfort and a reinforcement of a hope that these things are alive because there's so few, you know, if you take a catechism class, you're going to get ideas mm -hmm. as ideas. Here, you're dealing with living Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, Dante, mm -hmm. Ike, and go down Moses. Those of you who love Faulkner with all of his difficulties. <laughs> <laughs> let's go back. I've got this. So, what? So, here, let me do it. Here, let's look at a Beatrice and. Um, and then I've got, I want to try to answer this. Um, 372. Um, why, why does Beatrice scathe Dante? 371. 371. If listening can cause you so much grief, now raise your beard and look at me and suffer greater grief. She's not going to let it. But by the way, I hope you all, wait, is she not being virtuous? She is virtue herself. I'm, is everybody following? She is really angry. Does everybody understand that's a virtue here? Modern feminists would probably not like it. That's a virtue. She's got Christ in her. She's taking Dante apart. I'm only saying that because there may come a time when you want to take your husband or your wife or your child and say, knock it off. You know, if you do it because you love that person and you've got some self-control, don't be, don't back off. I mean, there are times when you have to say to your son, you cannot do this anymore, period. Or your daughter, stop it. Stop it. You guys may not have experienced that. <laughs> Here, let me go on. Let me go on. I've got the humor of this. I'm so glad we can laugh at this because I know when we do it, it's, it tears our souls apart. With less resistance is the sturdy oak uprooted by the winds of storms at home in Europe or by those um, that Larbus blows. And my soul offered to her curt command that I look up at her. She called my face my beard. I felt the venom in her words. And when I raised my head, I did not look at her, but at those first created ones. They had already ceased their reign of flowers. Then when I turned uh, my unsure eyes once more, I saw Beatrice face the beast who in two natures is one single being. Though she was veiled and at the other shore, lovelier now she seemed than when alive on earth when she was lovely. So her beauty is growing in this moment. Um, I felt the stabbing pain of my remorse. What I had loved most of all, the things that were not she, I hated now the most. Right? Because he turned his attention to, to them, gave them a power over <coughs> him he should not have, and, and getting free of them. So now in this moment, She's even more beautiful than she was before because he's cleaning up. Mm -hmm. um, the recognition of my guilt so stunned my heart I fainted. I just have to underline this again. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, all these great heroes, which of them ever fainted in all of the heroic things they did? <coughs> this is Dante's, what, I think it's his third. Three times. 
So we have to ask ourselves, what kind of an epic hero is Dante giving us? And I, th and I think we have to say, in terms of Christians, this is much closer to something like Christ than Achilles, Odysseus, and Aeneas. You know my, how much I love those men. Achilles, Odysseus, and Aeneas are extraordinary figures to me. Trinitarian, three times. When I revived, the lady I first saw strolling alone was now bent over me, saying, hold on to me, hold tight. She dips him in the stream of Lethe, and it's at this point he, he, his memories of sin are washed away. So, he's, so here's a river. He's crossed the river now, which marks a peripatia. The sins are forgiven. He will see her with even fresher eyes. Um, 373. The other three who see more deeply will instruct your sight as you bathe in her gaze of joyful light. They sang... Look deeply, look with all your sight, they said, for now you stand before those emeralds from which love once shot loving darts at you. Go down, a thousand yearning flames of my desire held my eyes fixed upon those brilliant eyes that held the griffin fixed within their range. Like sunlight in a mirror, shining back, I saw the twofold creature in her eyes, reflecting its two natures separately. Imagine, reader, how amazed I was to see the creature standing there unchanged, yet in its image changing constantly. And while my soul delighted and amazed was tasting of that food which satisfies and at the same time makes one hungrier. That's a foretaste of heaven. She's looking at the griffin, an image of Christ. He looks in her eyes and every desire he ever had was satisfied and set on hungering for more. That's a foretaste of heaven. Anybody in the presence of God will have every desire answered because man was given infinite desire because it had an infinite object. Our, our desires are to be turned to him. Every desire will be satisfied and at the same time <laughs> every desire will be set on for more because God is infinite. Now, how extraordinary is that? So why Beatrice? Let me just get to this because I want to I get to this most important point that, we're, that all of this has been going to. Why Beatrice instead of Christ? Um, for, for a couple of reasons, I believe. One of the most obvious, I think, is this. Dante was purified, right? Virgil said, crown and mitre you, right? So what's going on, that he should be scathed? What does this mean? I think what Dante's showing us, particularly because of the exchanges between them, you know, he faints, she becomes more beautiful, she scathes him. Um, he feels remorse. We're reminded that he was going to be damned until Mary went to get Lucia and Lucia Beatrice and her Dante, I mean Virgil. Because I think what Dante's showing us, this is the best I can do, because uh, it, it's been an important question as long as I've read this. I think what Dante's showing us is that there is some original love every one of us has um, that that will bring us to a reckoning. Well, let me try to elaborate on that. Um, if we're made, I want to try to be as clear in this as I can, if we're made in the image of God and God is present in everything around us, how well do we see that? I, you, you know for me, I don't think we see it very well at all. The saints and the mystics do, but most of us don't. The poets, I believe, good poets, good poets help us to recover that. But I think what's behind all of this is this, that every one of us, when, you're, when we're like the four-year-old girl, 
everyone has had these, what Joyce would call epiphany. We'll just look, I remember seeing, <laughs> I remember when I was in grammar school, seeing a girl, and I was just aware that I'm going to, this is going to get sexual, sorry, I hope you're, <laughs> I was so aware that she was a girl. Now this, I'm in, I'm in grammar school, so I'm, what, fourth, fifth, sixth grade? And that memory's still with me. The, the whole shape of her body was different from that of a boy. And it just hit me. I don't, you know, I'm not even sure that that's the, I think it's, I'm, it, I'm looking for a simulator or likeness. I don't think there was an epiphany, but that fact hit me with such force. I'm, I'm convinced that Dante had an epiphany of beauty, and I think Shakespeare did too. It's hard for me to believe that most artists don't. That you, you capture something of beauty, it could be in a tree. Wordsworth was a poem, painters and you know, musicians can be a chord. But in that picture, that tone, that scene, that sound, whatever it is, um, will be an image of something divine. It will awaken in us, it will resonate. And what I think what Dante's talking about is the way in which that plays out with another person. I, but, I mean, I, I'm, I'm straining for examples. I can remember the girl I dated with in high school, who's one of the loveliest girls I've known in my life. And I was too cocky and arrogant and went on and, you know, I went, I was in high school and very much to myself and then played basketball and a fraternity invited me in and I can remember, I, anyway, I look back on an embarrassment that I wish I had been a better person then. I mean, I didn't do anything wrong or bad, but I just think there was such a goodness to her that I felt right away but I just don't think I was worthy of at the time. I just didn't give it the value. Um, there's no way I could have been who I was. And my assumption is that that's true for lots of us, high school, junior high, that something will get awakened in us. We'll, you know, I th anyway, the point here that I want to make is that I think Dante's working with that, that there is some original innocence in a love that we feel, something awakens something in us, something divine like Dante with Beatrice, because he saw in her an image of the Trinity. That hit him with force. The question is, how faithful we are we? Or do we let the world take us over? Because if we're faithful, that road leads us on the path to holiness. But the world, our desire is what we want, money, career, whatever it is, get a hold of us, and something of that original innocence is lost. And you know, we already saw in the, iron and the, the level of the siren, that idolatries can take over. We can turn a love to somebody, but it won't be the right kind of love. It'll be a disordered love. We won't see it. It can be for another person, marriage. We don't, you know, who knows? I think the point here is this, that there's that original innocence of love. And every one of us will have a reckoning somehow, whatever that form it will take. Now, what does this all have to do with Beatrice and why not Christ? Here's the answer, and I want to stop here. We're, we're going to start the Paradiso. What's going to happen in the first seven cantos is really crucial. Dante and Beatrice will enter after he goes in the river of Unoe. All of his memories of good deeds will be restored, and he and, he and um, Beatrice will ascend into the, into the heavens. Um, now hold on to, on page 394. 
1994, gazing at her, I felt myself becoming what Glaucus had become, tasting the herb that made him like the other sea gods there, transhumanized. It cannot be explained per verba, so let this example serve until God's grace grants the experience. Whether it was the last created part of me alone that rose, O sovereign love, you know whose light it was that lifted me. What's happening in this moment is, now remember, this is crucial to see, and we almost don't see it. And here's why I brought up the idea of a peripatia. In, in, the, in the shift from Inferno to Purgatory, you can't miss it, but black-white. What happens with Beatrice and Dante at the end of the Purgatorio into the heavens is so continuous that it's almost like a peripatia didn't happen, but it does. And here's why it's important, transhumanized. Dante's going to make it clear in the, in the subsequent passages right away that bodies can enter bodies. He will enter the body of the moon. And you know on earth, bodies can't, the two bodies can't occupy the same space. Because we're beginning to enter heaven in which the laws of time and place don't quite apply. Not exactly the way they do. Dante's been transhumanized. Remember, the ancient word for this was theosis. It's the gradual transformation of man into divine. We take on the divinity of Christ. When Christ, and this is so extraordinary, and we just lose it in our heads. Christ took on our human nature. He indwelled. It shouldn't be foreign to him because by his very nature of the Trinity, he indwelled with the Father and Spirit. He's indwelling in the body. They're one, not two things. We learn that from Stasius. Plato will separate the body from the soul. Modern empiricists will separate the soul, the body from the soul. The Christian has to know they're absolutely one. When we die, our soul goes on, but our bodies will be returned to us because that's the way God made us. We can't get into a platonic or a empiricist notion of that unity. They're being transhuman. Dante's being transhumanized, so he's entered heaven. Picardo will be the first soul she'll meet. She makes it clear she's not there to express uh, a fact that she's not with a blessed. We'll read it next week. She's in heaven. Okay, he's talking with the souls in heaven. Why not Christ? Why not Christ? For this reason, and this is stunning to me. Um. Who made all this stuff? The Word. Who made all this stuff? The Word. How often do Protestants think of Christ as the Word and associate Him with Logos? They don't, because nature for them is depraved. There's no Logos. There's no string echoing a word or a word off a page speaking. Are you all following me? Mm -hmm. There's no word. Nature's corrupt. There's only my Savior, Jesus Christ. So it, the whole universe that was brought into being by this word incarnate is gone. They're going to have this personal relationship with Christ. What's Beatrice going to do with Dante? She's going to take him up through the heavens into the real world, the heavens, but she's also going to introduce him to a mystical world that is the, a world behind and implied by the heavens. Everything that faith can reveal that Virgil couldn't. You following? So she's going to be showing us Christ everywhere. The imprint of God everywhere. Why? 
Because how will we fully appreciate who Christ is if we don't see he's the word who did all this? The magnitude will be reduced to nothing. This is Jesus Christ, my Savior. This is the word, the incarnate word, who was the source of creation. In the beginning was the word. He was the instrument by which everything creation. He carries in himself all of creation. And he's a human. If we don't see Christ that way, can we really say we're seeing him as he is? Am I losing you guys? No? That's amazing, isn't it? There's no way to see him. If, if Jesus came to the earth, would, be, would we be seeing him as he is? Put him at the end when Beatrice goes through all this stuff. We're, you're gonna, we're gonna find there's gonna be intelligibility everywhere. Everything's gonna have meaning. Like that scene with the four-year-old girl. Everything's gonna have meaning. What's the source of that meaning? The word. How great is Christ? Dante does what no, what no modern almost can do after the Reformation. I think that's what's going on. Otherwise, why would Christ not appear? Because he's been purified. He's, why go through all this? Because the source of it all is our God, and Christ was the means of it. He was the means of it, the word, and he was the means of its redemption. He entered his creation. God, greater than his creation, became one with it. The omnipotent became poor. The wealthy came poor. Think of all the paradoxes. One outside of time enters time. One above time and unchanging enters a changing, changing time. He is extraordinary. He's extraordinary. He's not just Jesus Christ our Savior. He's the Word incarnate, and there's no way we can fully appreciate what He's done, who He is, if we don't continue that voyage from where Virgil left off with Beatrice. How, so is, you, that, you had wait, how, how is that for amazement? Yeah. I mean, isn't it true? I mean, just what the Protestant world has done and what the Catholic world is... You know, remember Pope John, or Francis, asked the whole Catholic world to read Dante mm -hmm. two years ago. How many people would read Dante and get this? Dante did an amazing thing. Dante did an amazing thing. This is just, the more you think, the more you look at what he's done, just... Anyway, sorry, David, did well, you... Well, no, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no. What I'm saying, it's, it's almost like you have to go through this trans, whatever... Humanization. Humanization <laughs> to be able to see Christ. You, you couldn't see it today, even if you were very virtuous, and that's why... Yep. Because he wasn't ready to see it, but it True. sounded like, well, I left hell, I'm in purgatory, I can be in purgatory and go to heaven. The transition there was not as easy. Yeah. Or I shouldn't say as easy, but yeah. it was much more elaborate. It's much richer, much yeah. deeper, sacramental. Do you all, any questions? Do you all follow where this is going? I mean, sure. where we're, why this is such an important moment here? Most people don't read the Paradiso because it's so intellectual. I'm going to say this to you guys and really press hard on you. I've already said it before, it's the most theological, it's the most abstract, it's the most intellectual. The others are far more human and dramatic. If we don't get into this pretty seriously, you just don't know. I mean, that's why I did this. If we see this, we should see that to continue this journey of faith, 
we have to learn to see Christ better than we do. It's what that supernatural poem, you know, supernatural love with a girl that's showing. That's beautiful. I mean, it, you were seeing Christ present in, in the thread, the scissors, the everything that's going on. Dante is now taking us into the cosmos and showing us that there's intelligibility in everything. Beatrice isn't using reason less than Virgil did. She's using reason just as much, but she's going to reveal a world that Virgil couldn't see. And the importance of that is, if she doesn't do that, we won't come close to appreciating Christ for who he is, the Word. Because he's the one who did all of this. It's all in him. Not only did he do it in creation, but he did it in, um, in redeeming us, making atonement. He brought the one who created it, atone for it. He's everywhere. I mean, we just can't say enough about him. That's, that's what Dante's going to go on. I think that's why, why um, Christ doesn't come to greet Dante after the purgation. Beatrice is a Christ-bearer. She's taking him to, to God, to Christ. And she won't be saying, there's Christ, there's Christ, there's Christ. There. But I think we're supposed to understand, there's intelligibility, there's intelligibility, there's intelligibility, there's meaning, there's, mean, there's form, there's form, there's form, there's form. What's the source of it? The form giver. The one who created it all. Okay. You guys must be tired. That's...